podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Pad up. It's the Australian Cricket Podcast. And here are your hosts. Welcome to the Australian Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Menzel, a.k.a. Menners. And joining me for this edition of the show, I have Paul Dennett. How are you, Paul? I'm great, Menners. And I cannot wait for this Australian tour of India to take place. Haven't been more excited about an Australian tour, maybe ashes aside, for as long as I can recall. Yeah, and in this week's edition of the show, Paul and I are going to run our discerning eye over the Australian Test Squad announced for that tour. We also have an extra special interview with Anthony Everard, the chief of the Big Bash League. But before we get into all that, I just wanted to give some podcast news to all the listeners. Firstly, the podcast has been nominated in the very first Australian Podcast Awards. They're called the Castaway Awards. And if you can please take a moment and vote for the Australian Cricket Podcast in the popular vote category. It will be much appreciated. To do that, you need to go to castawayawards.com.au and scroll down to vote for a podcast. Or if you're on social media, you can go to the Australian Cricket Podcast Twitter or Facebook page, and I've put a link there to the Castaway Awards. So if you could go ahead and vote for the show, much appreciated. I just don't want to come last. So if someone (laughs) can go in and just boost me up the table, that'd be great. With regards to the release of the Australian Cricket Podcast going forward, during the summer it's a bit hard to stay on a regular recording schedule with test matches and matches being played. But as the tests are over, I'm going to aim to release the shows on a Monday for the next few weeks. So I'm hoping to stick to that, which will make it easy for you to keep up with all the goings-on in Australian cricket. And just finally, to those winners of the Have A Go Your Mug mugs, they are all going out uh, this week. I just held back the last few winners um, over the festive season and people taking holidays, etc. But a shipment of mugs is going out soon. So all the winners, hang tight. They're coming out. And thanks to all those people who've taken the time to leave a review. Now, Paul... There was a huge amount of speculation leading up to the squad to India being announced for Australia. A big announcement. I would say it rivaled an Ashes announcement in the anticipation, wouldn't you say? Yeah, definitely. And that just reflects how much there's a, a keen anticipation of the series, albeit everyone, I think, expects Australia to lose. But while it's nil all, there's always cause for optimism. Yeah, I'm going through it difficult time at the moment. I think on the podcast, I made it clear that I'm I'm not confident about how Australia is going to perform. But then I kind of get this sort of green and gold mist that I try to keep away from me. But now I start to believe people like you when they say Australia have a chance. And now I'm starting to come up with all these scenarios and how Australia could actually win in India. And it's hard for me to separate my head and my heart at the moment. So it's a, it's a confusing time for my feelings. Well, it's the same for me. But I remember a few times during World Cups, that I've had this just this good feeling that Australia are peaking at the right time and that they're going to go on and win. And they often have. And I've started to think that maybe my feeling is what is actually causing them to win. And I have that same feeling about this India tour. So I think that, you know, maybe I'm onto something here and we, we actually could cause an upset. See, the problem is it's people like you that are leading me down the garden path. <laughs> I blame people like you for giving me hope when it, it, probably there isn't any. But let, let's go through this squad and start with the spinners that have been announced for Australia. Obviously going to be key components in the subcontinent. Now, the Australian selectors have announced that Nathan Lyon, Stephen O'Keefe, Ashton Agar and Mitchell Swepson will be going to India. Glenn Maxwell is also going as kind of an all-rounder and a, a sort of a part-time off-spinner. 
the the big inclusion there is the Mitchell Swepson one. I don't mind a young player being taken for experience, but I think a couple more spinners should have been taken ahead of him. I think uh, Farwad Armin and John Holland probably deserve to go ahead of Swepson. What do you think? I think with regards, firstly, John Holland, I was disappointed with the way that he bowled on the on the Sri Lankan tour, as I think most people were. And on the basis of that and the fact that his overall first-class record is is good but not great, I, he probably wouldn't have been someone that I would have considered. And he's also battling injury at the moment as well. Is, I think he actually is injured. No, he is injured, but he's supposed to come back very soon right. and play first-class cricket. He said he would have been ready for the tour. And actually some press that came out was interesting that no selector has been in touch with him in the lead-up to the Indian tour selection. So they didn't even know whether he was available or not, which I just cannot believe the Australian selectors would be that inept, not picking up the phone and talking to a spinner that represented the country you know, a couple of months ago. Yeah, well, I think it does reflect about the fact that the, the disappointment that was felt with the way that he performed in, in Sri Lanka and on, on pitches that were probably spinning even more than what Australia is going to encounter in India. But yeah, I think that it would have been better had, had, he been in contact with, had they been in contact with him, definitely. And he has 50 wickets in his last eight Shield matches and is a very similar bowler to Stephen O'Keefe. And, you know, I would hate us to be in the same situation that we were in India if, uh, say, O'Keefe were to unfortunately get injured and then we were to send Holland over there before a test match and have to throw him into the heat of a battle. So I don't, we don't want to make that mistake twice. My other thing about Swepson is, say, comparing him to Farwad Ahmed, I don't think Swepson has the experience to play in a big test match in India. And I think it, perhaps playing him could result in some potentially psychological scars for him. Whereas if you were to set, take someone like Farwad Ahmed over there, who has a lot more experience on the subcontinent growing up there, also has led the shield tally in wickets the last four seasons, at least... It's a shot for him. If it doesn't come off, well, he's mid-30s. It's not going to scar him. But, yeah, I think that was a mistake. I, I think that Farwad Armand deserved a place on the tour. And like you, I, I, I can see their reasoning for taking Swepson as a, as a thing for experience. And also, he does look very impressive. He, he's got a, a leg spinner that doesn't turn as much as Shane Warne's, but it turns enough. And that's more than can be said for... Quite a lot of leg spinners come through and their leg spinner barely turns at all. His turn's enough, and he also has a wrong one that is, is very effective. So he has the, the arsenal to be a very successful bowler at test level. At the moment, he looks like he's a little bit too inaccurate, and I fear that the Indian batsman would be able to defend his good balls and then wait on the bad ball and, and put him away. So I would be taking Ahmed ahead of him, but I don't mind that he's been taken. Yep, so curious how the spinners will go on this tour. Lyon and Stephen O'Keefe, you would think, will have to shoulder the burden for most of the overs. Now let's move to one area where I think the Australian selectors got this wrong, and that was with the wicket-keeping question. Matthew Wade has been included as the Australian wicket-keeper, and Trevor Hones, when announcing the squad, said he thinks Matthew Wade's keeping has improved since he came back into the side this summer. I don't think that's true. I think we've seen quite a few chances missed by Matthew Wade. And what I think was interesting, that Hones stopped short of saying that Matthew Wade was the best gloveman in the country, which I guess means Peter Neville is still effectively the best gloveman. Now, if the selectors know that, why wasn't he picked? comes back to the point that no one knows who the best gloveman in the country is because it's just all down to hearsay and opinion and there's no stats to back it up. I, I've seen Neville keep quite a lot during during this summer. He, he seems to make as many mistakes as any of them. Um, I, I don't know that he's better than Wade. I don't know that Wade's better than Neville. I tend to think that 
in the absence of any kind of conclusive proof one way or the other, I would pick the, the one who's going to do the best with the bat. My initial thoughts were I would pick Hanscom to be the keeper and squeeze an extra batsman in. Uh, but I've always thought on the subcontinent, Wade can do okay. He got a crucial 100 in the, shield, in the, in the one day or the other day. I can live with Wade being in the side, and I think, honestly, I probably would have taken him ahead of Neville. He is a good player of spin bowling, Wade. He loves to sweep. That could stand him in good stead over there. Moving on now to the quick bowling arsenal taken over there, and this is another area where I think we're making mistakes that we've made in the past, especially in Sri Lanka. Now, on this four-test tour, Paul, they're taking three quick bowlers, Hazelwood, Stark, and Bird. I just cannot fathom the logic in taking three quicks over there. That leaves no room for error. Uh, If someone gets injured, you have to fly someone over again, and they're going to have little time to acclimatise. If you turn up to a green top, you only have the three quicks. There's no other options. I don't get it. Well, I think that they're limited by the fact that they're only taking a squad of 16. And I I think you agree with me as well that we we would have taken a couple more than that, taken 18, and then you've got some more options to play with. I think when you're only taking 16... To a tour of India, I don't mind them only taking three quicks because I think that the quicks do play a smaller role. They would also argue that they've picked Mitchell Marsh as a, a bowler who bats a bit and that they could consider playing him as a specialist bowler and, and you know batting at number eight or number, uh, number nine. So I think that the pitchers in India will probably help the quicks a little bit more than they did in Sri Lanka. But in Sri Lanka, honestly, I think if we're going to play a fourth test, I'd have been pump, uh, I would have been suggesting we pick Stark and no other quick bowlers. Yeah, when we were talking about the size of the touring party, 16 or 18, Cricket Australia will will say that there is Sheffield Shield cricket going on here at the moment and that, you know, if you take a squad of 18 or even 20 to India, then, you know, you're taking extra players away from the Shield comp and they could be here playing first-class cricket. But I still think someone like a Pattinson or a Cummins should have been included in the squad just to be over there, acclimatise, bowl in the nets, get used to the humidity, get used to the conditions. And then if there is an injury, rather than flying someone over, they're there with the squad, they understand the pressure that's going on with the series and they can just slot in. Oh, definitely. I think that if they genuinely think that Pattinson or Cummins have a chance of playing in the third or the fourth test matches, they'd be vastly better off over there. But I I think that for both of them, they shouldn't pick them at all. The temptation is they're such good bowlers to rush them back earlier. Their effectiveness in India will be much, much reduced. And I don't think it's worth risking them at any stage in this tour. Let's keep them in cotton wool till um, the next summer when they're fully fit. But yeah, I can see that they. If, if you think that they needed an extra fast bowler, then I agree that they should have taken them over there now rather than bring them through halfway through. But as for the personnel, Stark, Hazelwood, and Bird have done a great job. So I think they were the the right three to to take. And before we move on, I guess it is worth noting that overall, I'm quite happy with the squad that's been announced. I think you know they've got a few things I would have done differently, but generally, I think it's there or thereabouts. But do you agree with that sentiment? Yeah, I think that they've picked a pretty good squad. It's all going to come down to, and we're going to get onto the batsmen now, but whether these youngsters that they've picked can perform in India. If they can, then we'll talk about the squad as being a success. If they fail, then we're going to look back and say, well, maybe should someone like Bailey have been included who's had some proven success in in subcontinent conditions in the past? But generally, it wasn't a head-scratching selection announcement where you look at it and go, I just can't see where they've pulled some of these names from. Let's move on now to the all-rounders. They've included Glenn Maxwell, Mitchell Marsh and Ashton Agar as a three-player who could fill a number of roles to give them flexibility at the selection table. I'm really happy with those three. I think they've all got 
a real potential. I know there's some questions about Mitchell Marsh being included after being dropped earlier in the summer. But as you pointed out, Paul, he looks the one all-rounder that can bowl some really good quick bowling. And he's had some success on the subcontinent with the bat in the past, notably against Pakistan in, in the UAE. So I think Marsh earned his spot. And it, it sort of puts a question mark over why in the last test of the summer at the SCG, they played Hilton Cartwright when they could have used a Maxwell, a Marsh or an Agar and tried a combination out for India. I think it lacked foresight. I agree. And I think that they must have considered that he might have been someone that they would take to India. But, you know, his bowling was unimpressive. Uh, His batting was okay, And I don't think he really threatened to be taken to India. So on a spinning wicket, um, it would have been handy to pick someone who was a, a genuine chance of going. I don't mind Mitchell Marsh going, but I wouldn't have picked him. I would have picked someone like Faulkner instead. I think that his bowling gives a, an extra dimension that Marsh's doesn't, and I think that he's a, a probably a better batsman than Mitchell Marsh as well. But he's not the worst selection. Maxwell being picked is a real... As long as they picked Maxwell, they could have picked anyone else, and I would have been happy. That I, I think that his, his time is now. There's been all this talk about him. They've got to pick him in the first test. He's got to show some discipline, but without being too constricted. And I really do think he could score some runs over there. Yeah, and I agree, and I think Agar could score some runs over there as well. I think he's someone who could bat at six, seven, or eight and and fill a couple of roles. So I think those three selections give the starting eleven real flexibility. And and this moves me on to the batsman because I, th- I agree with the batsman that the selectors have taken. So they took the top five from the Sydney Test, and then they've added Sean Marsh as the spare batsman. And I'm happy with that, but it just comes down to how they pick the final 11, which of those batsmen are actually going to play. Renshaw was one that came under scrutiny leading up to the tour announcement. Are you happy with Renshaw being included? Yeah, I think that he has to be included. You can't play that well and not be. And I know we've discussed before about we make the mistakes of choosing players based on Australian form and then they go to India and fail. But I think he's done enough to to, to warrant his chance and I'm optimistic that he can do that he can do quite well. But back to your the point that we keep on harping on about, I don't think there's enough that if we've only got Sean Marsh as the one backup player and you know, there's every chance one batsman will get injured and there'll be another player who might not have scored a run. We come into the third or the fourth test and we're looking for other options. Why why not take someone like Bailey along or, or, or someone else as a bit of a backup to get them acclimatised and, and to get them going? Because it's hard for a bowler to be shoehorned into Indian conditions, but I think it's even harder for a batsman where you've really got to get used to the low bounce and the spin and everything else. It would have been much better to have an extra player or two over there in the UAE getting acclimatised, in my opinion. Yeah, I I do agree with you. I think Travis Head was another one who would have been considered. They say he was left out because he's a a left-handed batsman and then Ashwin might run through him. Uh, But to your point about the the batsmen, I think actually they're probably only going to need four of those batsmen and we might see like Maxwell play at five and Mitchell Marsh at six and then you'll be sort of making the six batsmen go into four spots. And that, that puts a question mark to me on Renshaw and Usman Khawaja where they actually play in that starting eleven. Well, I would have thought that our lineup for the first match would be Warner, Renshaw, Kawaja, Smith, Hanscom, and then they'll probably bat Maxwell at six. And that's then meaning that only um, the only batsman not to play is Sean Marsh. Yeah, no, I would have a different lineup. I would have Warner and Sean Marsh opening, Steve Smith at three, Hanscom at four, Maxwell at five, Mitchell Marsh at six, Matthew Wade at seven, Stephen O'Keefe at eight possibly Nathan Lyon or Ashton Agar next, and then Stark and Hazelwood, depending on the conditions. But I think that they're going to pick Renshaw. Yeah, I think, and they'll probably pick Kawaja as well. Yeah. They're not listening to us, as usual, Paul. Well, I'm not too... If the six that I named were the six in the first test, I can live with that. 
as I said, we're generally happy with that a squad to India. It's just uh, it's how they put it together for that first test and how the Aussies fare. Uh, now, Paul, you and I were lucky enough as part of the Big Smash Cricket podcast that we're doing for Rebel Sport that is all about the Big Bash and the women's Big Bash. We were able to catch up with the chief of the Big Bash, Anthony Everard, last week at the SCG. And he was a fascinating character and a fascinating sports administrator, wouldn't you say? Yeah, he's an excellent administrator. He comes across as very across the detail, but also with the bigger picture in mind. He uh, answers every question that you ask to him instantly and clearly. And I, I've said it on, on the Big Smash podcast, but I think that while he's in charge of the Big Bash, Australian cricket in Australian T20 domestic cricket is in exceptionally good hands. Yes, Paul, and I relish the chance of being able to put the head of the Big Bash on the spot. As you know, I'm full of good ideas about how <laughs> cricket should be run in this country, and I was able to throw them at him in a, in a locked room, which I really enjoyed. So, listeners, now we're going to end the show with that interview from Anthony Everard done at the SCG, but I urge you, if you haven't already subscribed to the Big Smash Cricket Podcast, please go ahead and do that. Paul and I have been catching up with all sorts of characters, Brad Hodge, Shane Watson, Carlos Brathwaite. It's been a lot of fun, uh, great podcast to listen to, nice and short for your commute, commute to and from work. So go ahead and subscribe to the Big Smash Cricket Podcast. And if you've got time, please vote for the Australian Cricket Podcast on the Castaway Awards. Uh, rate the show on iTunes, write us at ozcricketpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for downloading the show and enjoy this interview with the Big Bash Chief, Anthony Everard. Welcome to the Big Smash Cricket Podcast, Anthony. Thanks so much for joining us. Are you happy with the way the BBL and WBBL is going this season? Yeah, we're delighted. I think, uh, you know, what are we, two, two-thirds of the way through both competitions? And, uh, yeah, I think this, this was always an interesting year for us in backing up the, the success of the inaugural WBBL and, uh, and, and really building on the, the momentum that the BBL had last year. So couldn't be happier with where we're at at the moment and we're excited about uh, the, the finalisation of the competition. Yeah, did you feel that pressure coming into both seasons, BBL and WBBL? I mean, astronomic success last year. Did you sort of feel that pressure? Yeah, yep, we did. I felt it like we hadn't felt it in any other year. And uh, particularly with the BBL, I think, um, you know, the the numbers last year, we we were basically 25% up on everything. And that growth is is not sustainable in in reality. You know, a lot of our stadiums are filling up now. So we had to reset our objectives a little bit. And uh, and we did that before the season. But yeah, in terms of where we are now, absolutely delighted. And, you know, at this stage, it looks like being another huge success for both competitions. So what's been good about the BBL this season so far? What's been good about it? I think all the elements that have been good about it for the last few years, um, you know, our, our objective really hasn't changed for five or six years now, and it's about new fans with a focus on kids and families. And what we're seeing, if it's even possible, is more families than, than, uh, than last year. So uh, great that uh, the families are having a fun night out at the BBL. Um, the element of tribalism is really starting to grow as well. You know, I've been to a number of games and there are times where you can hear a pin drop if a wicket falls or a six is hit by the opposition. Um, so a combination of those two things, it's, it's really developing a sustainability and a, um, I guess a consolidation to it now. Whereas in the first few years, it was maybe a little bit up and down on any given night, but there's a consistency now that's been awesome. 
Yeah, the Channel 10 uh, chief, David Barnum, was saying that the parochialism you're talking about is now being reflected on the viewer figures and that if the home team's playing, then the, the figures are higher in those cities. And he cited the Brisbane Heat as an example where a lot of people are tuning in. I guess from your point of view, when fans start to attach themselves to the local teams, that will build a more genuine and long, longer-standing competition. Yeah, spot on. And it's something that we, we battled with a little bit a couple of years ago, trying to get our heads around, do we want to position the BBL as just a fun night out for mum, dad and the kids? Well, yes, we do, because that's how we're going to grow our fan base. But there's got to be a sustainability to it. We don't want this to be a fad. And then the next event comes along in a couple of years and steals our audience. So right now, I think we're pretty comfortable that we can have the best of both worlds. And that's what we've got. But make no mistake, the tribalism is there and it's reflected in our merchandise sales. Our merchandise sales went through the roof last year and they've gone up again this year. So, you know, people wouldn't be handing over $100 for a shirt or 50 or $60 for a cap if they weren't um, emotionally and passionately committed to their team. You made enormous strides, as you said, with families. Uh, there are still, I don't know, a, a hardcore of sceptics out there who regard this form of cricket as hit and giggle and whatever else. What would you say to someone like that who's a cricket fan but just hasn't given given the BBL a go yet? Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't agree with them, and I think you know the quality of the cricket that we've seen over the last few weeks, both men and women, has been phenomenal. The skill uh, across all of the uh, the different disciplines. Um, but I also accept that it's not for everyone, and it was never launched a few years ago to try and um, address all of our the different segments of our fan base. I think cricket is, is a unique sport. We've got three different forms. Um, we've just had the highest ever um, attended test series for a non-Ashes or India test series with Pakistan. So cricket's pretty healthy, and I think it's a great strength of the sport that there is something there for everyone. There's lots of talk of expansion, and whether that's expanding so that every, every team plays uh, each other twice or new teams come in, inevitably either, either of those would result in maybe an extra month that would push into outside the the peak school holiday period it might impact on the Sheffield Shield eventually when expansion does come how do you view it uh, occurring well it's it's got to be done in a way that is consistent with the strategy Uh, one of the reasons why the BBL has worked is that we had a plan from the outset and we had a very very clear vision as to what we wanted to achieve and we've stuck to that plan so expansion is no different to that it's about broadening and diversifying our fan base now there are a number of different ways we can do that, uh, but we also don't live in a, in a bubble and we need to coexist amongst the other forms of the game. So uh, we started giving some, some fairly serious thought to that um, and we've got a few options on the table to consider. Uh, we're, not in a, we're not in a particular rush. Um, and I also think it's important to factor in the launch of the WBBL last year, which actually is a form of expansion in some form. We've now got 16 teams competing in two competitions that run in parallel, an enormous upside that's still available to us with WBBL. So, yeah, I think it's just doing it in a really considered way. Can we possibly see the BBL mirror the WBBL and have each team play each other twice and a proper home and away format? Is that something that's a possibility in the future? I think it's desirable. Um, Although it's, it's probably the exception to the rule. When you look around the world at sports leagues, it's, it's probably rare that you do find that very neat, um, you know, um, consistent home and away fixture. So we're no different to probably most of the other leagues in Australia, for that matter. The question for us is, so at the moment we play uh, 32 regular season games plus three finals. 
um, to go for home and away, you're taking us up to, I think it's 58 or 59. So it's, a, it's not an insignificant additional number of games. And the question then is, when do you play them? Now, we could play some more games in the afternoon as double headers. We can use the time zone. But I, personally, I think that, that, that the scarcity of the BBL games at the moment, you've only got 32 of them a year, is one of the, the factors that's worked for us, which is not to say we don't have an appetite to play more. We've just got to be really careful as to how and when we schedule them. Sensible. With the, with the WBL, I mean, it's only been in existence for, what, 13 months and already would rival almost any w- women's sports league in the world. Is there an argument, though, for going harder and saying, uh, I think the, the average, the, the minimum salary this year was 3000 uh, last year was 3000 went up to 7000 Could you argue and say, let's really invest in it, uh, burn some extra money, bring that minimum right up and... Um, uh, just like the BBL ran at a significant loss early on, do the same for the WBBL for the greater good long term? Yeah, I think you'll find that that is already happening. So, um, And it's probably not unique to WBBL. Um, cricket Australia is looking at women's cricket in a broader sense and we've um, contributed an additional $2 million to, um, to player payments across all forms of women's cricket in the last, uh, the last 12 months. We've made a significant financial commitment um, by way of live streaming every WBBL game and also contributing towards the Channel 10 production costs for the free-to-air games. And as you guys would be aware, um, we've just started negotiations with the ACA and there's a pretty strong appetite from both parties to improve the financial uh, terms under which the, the women play the game. So it's, it's kind of watch this space, but it's, uh, it's moving at a rapid pace and we'll continue to do so. Now, Anthony, we spend a lot of time on the podcast coming up with great ideas for the way the BBL should run. So it's kind of a dream of Paul and I's to get you in a room. It's, <laughs> we can lock the door so you can't escape. And we just want to throw a few ideas at you and you can tell us what you think. Now, the first one is the Jumbotron. I thought it went off really well. What did you think? Yeah, I think I think it was a great great addition to Eddie Eddie had Stadium. I think we, you know, the BBL and the clubs like to think of themselves as innovators. So it was wonderful that I think the Big Bash could be the first sport to do that um, in that venue. I think for a first effort, it was probably an eight out of ten. Um, and I know that they have aspirations to make it you know bigger and better into the future. So uh, yeah, I thought it was a great initiative. Another one that I've been going on about for a while is coming up with a ball that is generic so when someone catches the ball they get to keep the ball like in major league baseball um so my theory was you would have sort of a a few types of balls new medium old and then you lose a ball they just pull out another one what do you think about that for a promotional aspect it's actually something that's been given a huge amount of consideration over the last few years um even to the extent that uh i think it was 18 months ago before last season during the practice games, we actually ran uh, ran a trial where we had four buckets of balls, zero to five overs, six to ten overs, and we let the crowd keep the uh, the ball in those practice games. We haven't quite got it across the line with all the different stakeholder groups that we need to, including, um, importantly, the players themselves, but I think it's a great idea. Um, Kookaburra will be on board. Great they, for their sales. they would certainly be on board. You know, it obviously, it already happens in baseball. The difference there is that the, the condition of the ball doesn't really change. So the key for us is how is it adding to the fan experience but not necessarily impacting the integrity of the game. And we're not quite there to satisfy ourselves that we can deliver it yet. How about DRS? There's been a few umpiring errors in the last few days. Um, is there any plans to bring that in? No. No, I think we, we, we like the two elements that we like around about the current format. One is we want to keep the game moving. Um, it's one of the unique features of Big Bash is that it's a fast game. And we actually quite like the 
old school charm of having all the decisions largely sit with the uh, with the on-field umpire aside from runouts. So it's not um, we have looked at it, but it's not hasn't really gained any momentum or traction with any of our stakeholders. Really, that's um. Because uh, if I can give a voice of dissent, that would be something that would mean a lot to me as a fan. That um, I find the human element disappointing when it makes it when there's a mistake and it, um, it changes the course of the game. And the, the the DRS review, although it takes a bit of extra time, I tend to find it a fairly captivating piece of television. Um, so I'm not convincing you in any way. Uh, there's certainly arguments for and against. I think um, in terms of our priorities, and, and again, think about what are the initiatives that we can put in place that are going to attract new fans to cricket. Um, I'm not sure that that's probably on our, our top five at the moment. It would certainly um, add value to our existing cricket fans. Now, very good answer. Um, okay, so I'm going to put this to you. Why shouldn't they play a Big Bash game on Christmas Day? Why shouldn't they play a big yeah. Bash League game on Christmas I'm, Day? I'm so up for Christmas Day cricket. <laughs> probably... I have t- really long, boring Christmas days with my family. Yeah. Can you save me? Uh, I, I think, um, and as you, you guys are aware, I mean, we are looking at, at this at the moment. Um, if we were to do it, we just want to make sure that we give it every chance of success. Um, the players are obviously very, very important stakeholders, and we are very conscious that they already have significant commitments throughout the year. Um, we'd want to find a way that um, maybe their families can attend the game. or it's, it's no different to what the Australian Test Team does in Melbourne. What it's about actually, a financial inducement to play on Christmas Day? Uh, potentially. Um, look, I, I think there's, there's a whole lot of um, potential barriers um, that we've identified, and they're all the obvious ones, I guess. It's, um, you know, we don't want to distract from family time, from, from our, our fans, whether it's watching on TV or attending. It's the venue arrangements. It's having a club that puts their hands up to want to host um, religious um, religious groups. So we, we've identified the list. I must admit, given the debate over the last sort of few weeks, there's nothing that's been overwhelmingly compelling that has, that's come out to say no. Um, all the obvious things have come forward and we're aware of those and, and we probably think there are ways to address those as, in fact, the NBA has done for 40 years now to make it into one of the biggest days on the NBA calendar. So I'm not saying that it will definitely happen. Um, there's quite a bit of work to be done um, to, to do it in such a way um, that, as I said, addresses all the different stakeholder needs. Any chance that you can see in the future and would you like this to happen for the Indians um, to be allowed to play in the, in the BBL? Oh, in an ideal world, yes. Um, how good would it be to see Virat Kohli, you know, run, running out onto uh, onto the BBL field? But I, I think uh, what we found over the last few years is that we're not necessarily reliant on Indian players for this competition to succeed, um, and it also does bring some complications as well. I think uh, you know, right now we're we're very fortunate, and we're probably one of the few sports leagues in the world that are, we're totally the master of our own destiny. All the decisions we make can be linked back to that strategy. Um, and just to give you an example, uh, I'm sure that we would have some interesting discussions with an Indian broadcaster around start times for games yep. if, if we had Indian players involved. Um, and f- for now, anyway, we can largely schedule our games um, as it suits a local audience. But uh, we'd, we'd love to see them involved. I think one day they will be, but mm-hmm. it's, I wouldn't necessarily say it's going to be in the next few years. Before we let you go, I want to sort of take this right back to the beginning of the BBL. And one of the reasons the BBL was started, that Cricket Australia had a survey that 5 to 15-year-olds at the time didn't list cricket in their top 10 interests and it was just becoming less relevant for that age group and the BBL was started to change that. Have you seen a big change in the way juniors participate with cricket as a result of the BBL? 
No doubt. Um, I mean, the same piece of research, it was independent research, it wasn't Cricket Australia research, indicated that um, 5 to 15-year-olds ranked cricket as their favourite sport last year. So it was actually 7th um, in 2010, wow. so it's, uh, that, that's a good indicator. Um, our participation numbers right across the board have grown. I, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but, uh, but both boys and girls um, have had experienced substantial increases. I must admit, I actually don't think we're probably going to see the true legacy of the BBL as we've experienced it in the last few years for another five to ten years yet. Um, you know, 65% of our attendees are families. Um, you only need to look out into the crowd and see the number of number of kids at games. And really, that's the generation that's now going to come through as the, the BBL generation. That's how they were introduced to cricket, both boys and girls. And I think it'll be fascinating to see over the next 10, 15, 20 years how that then, I guess, manifests itself through all the different elements of cricket, whether it's TV ratings and attendances at tests and ODIs, whether it's participation, all those different elements. It's pretty exciting. I think what's what's great about now is we're seeing some players like Peter Hanscom who's done who had that famous night in the BBL where everyone watched him hit the winning runs and now play Test cricket. Hopefully that brings in those yeah. young players. And Paul and I, we mused that when we were young we'd watch the World Series, you know, the fifty over game and that sort of led us to Test cricket. So hopefully the BBL can do the same. Look, that's that's the theory, and, and uh, it's it's difficult to quantify that in terms of tracking the fan journey. Um, but there's no doubt. I mean, um, you know, I think um, Peter Hanscom's a good example. Chris Lynn's a very topical example at the moment. You know, how many little kids around the country who've um, fallen in love with what Chris has been able to do over the last few weeks will now tune in on Friday night and watch him represent Australia in ODI cricket. That may well be their first taste of, of, uh, of the 50 over format. So, yeah, I think it's it's that's the theory, and there's no doubt we will see that translate into practice. We already are in, in, in a lot of different ways. Just one final one from me. One of the things that I've really loved about the coverage of Channel 10 right from the start has been that they mention the test matches. They interviewed Darren Lehman. They, they talk about them. That's almost unprecedented in Australian TV that they actually acknowledge something that's going on on a competitor. Was that something that you guys actively kind of negotiated with them or have they done that off their own bat? Look, to their credit, they've done that off their own bat. I think well, um, ideally we'd like both nine and ten to be cross-promoting each other. I don't think that's realistic. Um, but I, I think ten, it's indicative of the way they go about the whole broadcast. They see the bigger picture. Um, you know, they are there for what, at the end of the day, um, their viewer wants to hear. And it, it does seem a little odd when you turn on your TV at night, or it would seem a little odd to turn on your TV at night if there was something spectacular happened during the test during the day for it to be invisible and not exist. So credit to Channel 10, I think it has been a great addition and a great feature of their broadcast. Clearly their focus is BBL, um, but it's, a, it's all about a, a celebration of Australian cricket and, and they've really brought that to life in their broadcasts. Yeah, David Barnum from Channel 10 was saying that it was a wonderful thing for AFL when uh, two networks were competing and it just lifted the whole, pro- whole profile of the sport. And obviously this is what's happened here with two networks carrying the sport. It's just been good for everybody. Oh, look, no doubt. And, and, you know, credit to Channel 10 again. I think when, when they secured the rights, there were some questions asked, probably not so much from within Cricket Australia, but to the, to the cynical sporting public, how's this new broadcaster going to go about it? You know, Channel 9 have been doing it so well for years. And I think one of the smartest things Channel 10 did was to not try and replicate what yeah. Channel 9 have been doing. They, they went and the first, first move they made was sign Ponting and Gilchrist as their commentators. So that was a pretty good, um, pretty good indication early on that they knew what they were doing. We had some really good discussions initially around what were our objectives and how could they help us achieve our objectives through the broadcast and it might have taken us a couple of years to fine-tune that. But at the end of the day, what we've settled on now is fun. We want the BBL to be fun for our fans at the match. The players are clearly having fun. And how can Channel 10 bring that to life in the commentary box 
and into the living rooms of Australians, and they've absolutely nailed it. It's it's light relief. It's um you know this is not. Um, no one's playing for sheep stations and uh, I think sports fans, you know, it's pretty heavy going sometimes watching your team and uh, particularly at this time of year, maybe fans are looking for something a little bit differently and again, 10 have absolutely nailed the execution of that. Well, Anthony, thank you so much for joining us on the Big Smash Cricket Podcast. Good luck with the rest of the BBL season and uh, hopefully we can catch up again sometime. No worries, good to talk to you. Thanks, Anthony. What a marvellous strike. He's played no better shot than that in the whole of the series. Sports Social Podcast Network.